Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined this week by Ross. Hello. The subject of our show today is uh, rail work. Uh, you know, people who work on the railroad and you know help deliver all of the goods effectively that make their way to the stores and businesses that rely on them. Ross is much more knowledgeable on this subject than me, and maybe you could start uh, just by giving a bit of an introduction into your experience in that field and you know what makes you qualified to talk about this. Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Um, I, uh, by, by trade, uh, pay the bills uh, as a locomotive engineer, which means I, I operate or, or drive a train, as, as people often like to commonly say. Um, I uh, also co-chair an organization called Railroad Workers United. Railroad Workers United is, is a cross-craft coalition of, of railroad workers and allies uh, who are, are working to uh, bring the rank and file into one conversation and find ways uh, to uh, help uh, share some, some vision and, and guidance to our leadership and, and push them in the direction that, that we need to go as, as rail labor. And so uh, I, I think uh, my experience is, is primarily on the job, but also organizing uh, within my craft and, and across uh, many railroad crafts. Now, how long have you been doing that, both uh, the broader work of uh, uh, working on railroads and um, working with this coalition specifically? Uh, I've been uh, on the railroad for almost two decades, and about half that I've spent uh, working with, with Railroad Workers United. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned it's a, a cross-craft coalition here. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? You know, what sort of crafts are we talking about? What, what are the divisions within that coalition? Sure. So uh, primarily, there's the operating crafts, which would be conductors and engineers. Uh, engineers like myself tend to belong to the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and trainmen, conductors who would... Uh, work alongside me, tend to belong to uh, smart uh, transportation, smart TD. Uh, and those are the operating crafts. And then uh, outside of that, there's an additional 10 to 12 other craft unions, uh, things like uh, dispatchers or uh, maintenance of way, signal maintainers, uh, car maintenance, uh, you name it, it kind of runs the gamut from boilermakers and uh, IBW electricians to uh, machinists uh, and so on and so forth. So there's within the current bargaining coalition, there are uh, 12 or have been up until this point, 12 different craft unions. To my mind, that seems like a lot to wrangle just to like get everybody on the same page. Obviously you share a lot of interests, but at the same time, there must be things that aren't shared among those interests. Um, do you find that there are stark divisions between, you know, what would make your job better and what would make, say, a Boilermaker's job better or someone else down the line? It's an excellent question. First, I'll start with maybe what we have in common, and that is sure. uh, the rail carriers themselves, the companies we work for. Uh, that are highly profitable, making billions of dollars in profits and, and trying to squeeze each and every uh, craft, regardless of, of which railroad worker it is. So I, I guess I'd start there in that that is such a big thing in common. And the way to fight is to unite um, and, and 
bargain collectively together. In the past, rail carriers have done an, uh, a pretty good job of dividing uh, and conquering, uh, finding ways to pit uh, one craft against another to get uh, to sort of establish that that pattern bargaining. Um, so there, it, it is a difficult task. Um, I would say that uh, I think Railroad Workers United has since its inception, really tried to bring all the, the craft unions together uh, in a conversation or at least rank and file members of, of all the crafts together and really try to push all rail labor to bargain collectively together. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons that this round of bargaining has to this point maintained that coalition is, is because Railroad Workers United has helped to push that demand to, to all of our unions. Uh, I also think it's come about out of uh, necessity as well. So when it, it comes to each individual crafts, there are different demands. And we went recently went through a process of mediation uh, through a, a presidential emergency board or a PEB, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, and in that process, each craft had an opportunity to lay out specific demands for that craft that were above and beyond sort of the kind of the core central like wages and healthcare and, and those sorts of things. So um, e each and every craft would have uh, varying demands that they would issue. For example, uh, my craft uh, was, was really interested um, in focusing on some draconian attendance policies that have been implemented in the last couple of years um, that, that maybe didn't affect another craft, whereas maintenance away um, has been really squeezed by the expenses that they face uh, on the road, whether it be lodging and, and mileage uh, to and from the job site, those sorts of things. So they, they may have been more focused on, on those. And so, yeah, each craft is going to have some unique demands that, that were presented before the PEB. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about this uh, attendance policy you mentioned. You know, what's your experience with that been like? It's not great. <laughs> um, I think to understand the attendance policy, you, you really have to first understand how we work and um, the operating crafts, the, the large majority are on call 24 seven, 365. Uh, so typically we're on a board that rotates. So uh, I just got off the, the, the job a few minutes ago and fell somewhere in line on that board. I, I didn't even really have time to check yet, but let's say um, I, I tied up the job and I was the fourth person on that board. Uh, basically, that means the, that I'll be the first, fourth person to get called once a, uh, a job or a train, uh, whatever it is, comes available and needs to be filled. So time off is sort of a misnomer because the typical uh, over-the-road engineer or freight conductor doesn't necessarily know when they're going to be working, even tomorrow. Uh, so... Time off is, is strictly whatever you've accrued in, in vacation days or, or personal days, which for a starting railroader, uh, I, I want to say it's a couple weeks vacation and maybe five personal days or something like that. And that's it. No weekends. So you're working uh, daylights, uh, afternoons, overnights, on call 24-7. You, you have a couple hours uh, probably from the time the phone rings to report to the job site. And, and then you're on duty for that shift uh, upwards of, of 12 plus hours. Uh, it's, it's uncommon, at least in my experience recently, to, to work a short shift today. I just got off a shift that was about 11 and a half hours. Actually, it was more than 11 and a half hours. And uh, it, there are times where, although we can only operate uh, a train under federal law for 12 hours, uh, there are times where you might uh, not make it into a change out location or a, a terminal where they can call another crew. So 
they have to then get a crew cabbed out to you and, and that could take hours uh, as well. Um, so it's, it's long hours. Uh, you're often working out of town in a hotel before you can come back home. And uh, so understanding that I think is very important when we talk about attendance because time off is, is very uh, short in coming. And uh, now under these policies, uh, we're sort of treated uh, to this mathematical matrix of points based on, and I'm not going into detail, but when you will lay off, are you, is it the weekend? Is it a holiday? Is it a weekday? You know, what, what job are, are you working and, and so on and so forth. And so it, it becomes a, a mathematical calculation to determine whether or not the, the points uh, allow you to lay off and uh, very quickly that can trigger uh, disciplinary action uh, through that, that system. Just to give listeners a bit of behind the scenes, you know, we originally tried to record this last week and you were called into work that night. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, in a given week, how many hours do you typically work? It does vary greatly. So I, I was just looking at this recently because one of the things that the carriers tried to maintain is that uh, the operating crafts, I think, average around 33 hours a week. And that, that may or may not be true. Uh, I, I looked at the last 19 days, I think, uh, the other day, and I was at, uh, for that 19-day period, I was at 120 hours, so roughly a little more than six and a half hours a day, I think. Uh, again, no, no weekends off, no, no uh, clear time off. I think one of the things that doesn't get factored in often is there were times where I would be first out, meaning I would be the first person that would receive a call. And I might be sitting there for, uh, as I was the other day, I might be sitting there for 23 or 24 hours. Again, I have two hours to report. There's not quality time there. There's not, it's not like I can go out and make plans and, and sit down and, and, uh, I, I don't know, do some of the normal things that people might do with a 24 hour period off, uh, because I have to be ready to go and I have to be rested to go. And, and so, uh, that's not factored in. And the other thing that that's not talked about often, I think is, uh, hours that people spend away from home in a hotel room. Uh, and again, getting rest to get the next train back home. Uh, you, you may be there 10, 12, uh, well, minimum, uh, uh, 10 hours undisturbed, but it, it could be as much as 24. This, this doesn't happen much anymore, but uh, I, I've sat out of town for several days on end. Uh, again, not quality time that you can spend with, with your family or, or make plans or, or get things done around your house. I am curious, uh, you said you've been working there about two decades now. Have, how have things changed over that time? Have things grown worse during those past two, 20 years or so? Well, certainly that uh, attendance policy that we were just talking about, Ryan, it has just recently uh, come about. Um, about five or six years ago, uh, the uh, U.S. carriers, the, the biggest class one railroads, uh, started implementing a operating method, which was uh, coined PSR or precision scheduled railroading. Uh, I, I can tell listeners that without a doubt, when uh, your employer starts rolling out uh, something with an acronym, it's probably not good <laughs> for you. Uh, so the, the precision part uh, of precision schedule railroading is the one I focus on. And really, the whole plan was to increase operating ratio, to drive st stockholder, shareholder prices uh, up and to pay out large dividends to make a lot of, a lot of profit. Um, but the precision part is, is really interesting because it's how precisely uh, can the operation be cut to where it is a bare bone skeletal operation. And from my perspective, railroads cut way too deep. So a decade ago, roughly, we would have had 200 
thousand union employees. I think today we're somewhere around 115. These are rough numbers, but so, somewhere around that, the attrition uh, in in just during this PSR period has been about 30 percent. And up until PSR, there were many people who were furloughed, uh, sometimes furloughed and recalled multiple times and left the industry. Um, you, you had, uh, and, and I should say that these cuts occurred long before COVID. This isn't, there, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the pandemic and trying to uh, lay the railroad problems at the feet of the pandemic. And that's simply not the case. It is, it is very much uh, because uh, they chose to make uh, deep cuts um, and not focus on reinvesting their profits into either their workforce or uh, maintenance and, and new capital expenditures. It, it was very much uh, cuts, 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 deferred maintenance, uh, what's the bare bones we can do under the regulation and and how little can we get by with and, and still run the operation? And so because of those changes, we're in this situation today where there's uh, supply chain issues and, and trouble uh, operating trains and, and shippers flocking to trucks as an alternative. And, and people probably have noticed that um, interstate highway system is, is just clogged with with freight moving by truck and a lot of that is because the railroads chose to focus on this profit-driven model versus delivering a service what you're describing sounds a lot like um the sort of uh, just-in-time logistics that have taken over any number of industries at this point you know and it's a similar story in those industries as well where things get cut to the point where you know, if everything runs on schedule, you can turn this thing around as soon as it arrives effectively in whatever warehouse it's arriving. Uh, it's the story of Amazon and any number of retailers now. But the pandemic did expose the ways in which uh, those sorts of things are unsustainable. They could not take, you know, any sort of disruption to the norm because when one part falls out of line, the whole system falls with it. It is really interesting the ways in which these sorts of cuts for efficiency and, you know, whatever justifications the rail companies are giving for it are coming at the expense of um, sustainability and at uh, the ability to keep them running through problems. I, I, yeah, I think there's a lot, uh, a lot of truth to what you just said. I, I like to think of it as the financialization of the railroads, really just Wall Street trying to, to really cash in on uh, something that uh, hadn't up until really recently seen a, a deep lean production. Because PSR is similar to what you may, may have seen in other industries like the auto industry or the steel industry with, with lean production and uh, you know doing uh, more work faster with fewer people uh, that hadn't necessarily come to the railroad uh, full force uh, in large part because the railroad can't operate uh, it, under the, in that environment. And we're, and we're seeing that we're seeing that come to fruition. Uh, you mentioned a bit, the ongoing negotiations between uh, the various unions and rail companies uh, Set a bit of the stakes for those negotiations. Um, first off, I guess, uh, when was the last time these negotiations were held prior to the, this year's ongoing? Good question. Obama era, I don't remember the exact year. It's okay. It's been a while since we've had a contract. We typically operate on a five-year contract. Ours expired in 2019 under the Railway Labor Act. We continue to work under the previous contract until uh, negotiations can come to uh, through through the RLA process of the Railway Labor Act. So that makes now three years that you've been operating without a contract and trying to find a new one. And in that time, the whole pandemic has happened. And I'm sure that hasn't made the process any easier. Um, what are some of the 
key issues at stake in this round of negotiations. Well, three years is a long time to go without a pay raise. And I'm <laughs> sure that, that many are looking at the bottom line and, and looking at what is at stake monetarily. Uh, you mentioned how each craft union obviously has its own set of demands. Those are very important. I think a lot of it boils down to quality of life. And it, this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently is how much uh, quality of life uh, for uh, us as workers mirrors safety. Not only are we able to do a job more safely, but in order to uh, get the kinds of working conditions you need to have quality of life, those things tend to reinforce uh, things that create a safer work environment. And so uh, it, it does come down to obviously wages and, and benefits, uh, but quality of life and, and safety is, is huge in my mind. And I think it's, it's huge in, in the minds of my coworkers. It's because of the cuts and because people are stretched so thin, it's, it's definitely become a work environment that is, is concerning. Another big piece of that is healthcare. We're seeing healthcare costs, uh, not just on the railroad, but uh, all, all over, uh, just rising so greatly. And railroad workers gave up a lot in order to get the premium healthcare uh, that they had in the past. When I started, uh, you know, we didn't have uh, a monthly premium. Uh, co-pays were, were next to nothing. Uh, really, there was nothing out of pocket. I, I think my, uh, my my teenager, I think the birth of our teenager cost me less than 100 bucks, if, if that. Uh, and uh, fast forward to today, and uh, I, I think last year, about 15% of my income went to healthcare. And, and so part of the, 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 the railroads uh, want to push that onto us and say that, that we're not healthy. Well, uh, I, again, think of the lifestyle beat on call 24, seven, 365. And, and then you're working in these conditions where you're being pushed harder and harder to do more in uh, a dangerous environment, not necessarily the best walking conditions. Uh, many coworkers who've had knee replacements and things like that. So healthcare is a big deal. And, and I've heard over and over um, that that was sort of a deal breaker in this when the PEB ruled that they were going to remove a, a cap and allow railroads to increase uh, health care costs. Uh, that for, for many, if not most of my coworkers, was definitely a, a deal breaker. The, the PEB, you mentioned this uh, presidential, um, I'm forgetting the acronym. Emergency now. Board, Presidential Emergency yes. Board, yeah. Um, there's, there's only been 250 in history, so that's probably why you haven't heard it. <laughs> yeah. What, what can you tell about this? Cause this is sort of a, a new intervention into these negotiations. This only came about last month or so, right? Correct. I was Yeah. PEB, uh, August 16th, I believe it was, uh, actually it was this month. Wow. It's been a long month. <laughs> uh, so just this month came out with their, uh, recommendation is the non-binding recommendation that they mediated between the rail carriers and the craft unions. Um, Subsequent to that, following that, that uh, uh, recommendation, there's a 30 day cooling off period before uh, either party, uh, whether the carriers look at a lockout or the rail unions look at a strike, there's a 30 day cooling off period that will end in, in the middle of September. So that's, that's, we're kind of near drawing to the tail end of the process. There doesn't necessarily have to be a work stoppage. Uh, negotiations could proceed. They could, could continue, but uh, my sense is the, the gulf is pretty wide, but we'll, we'll, we'll find out. There's, there's a lot to, to, to go forward. Um, and then if there is a work stoppage, of course, this is critical infrastructure. Um, as, as we learned during the pandemic, we're essential workers and, uh, the, the, the process under the Railway Labor Act would be that, that uh, kind of our fates fall to Congress. Congress to implement, well, first off, 
to uh, by act, an act of Congress put us back to work if we strike or if the carriers lock us out. And then uh, from that point, uh, Congress could uh, then choose to uh, legislate uh, a contract for the next five years that we'd work under. The reaction I had when I learned that uh, Congress could play a role in this and that Congress could end up deciding effectively the conditions you operate under, you know, that that really does seem like a last resort. That that can't be something that you're looking forward to, the idea of this Congress having that power. We'd quickly learn who our friends are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's not something necessarily I relish, but also um, the way I've been thinking about it more and more is uh, at some point because of the the uh, continued concessions. At some point, we need to stand up for ourselves and make a stand. And this is a fight, right? It's a fight between our interests and the carrier's interests. And if you're in a fight with somebody. Uh, let's say it's a, a, I don't know, use a sports analogy, a, a, an MMA fight or a boxing match, right? Your, your opponent's not going to have any respect for you uh, if you're continually backing down and, and you just sort of give up. And so the one tool we have is the threat of a strike. And so it is my belief that, that we should be continuing to push that direction. And um, if that means that, that Congress has to step in and intervene, then so be it. Um, I, I have trouble imagining Congress looking at that presidential emergency board and offering something worse. Now, now who's on this emergency board? Uh, the name suggests that the president has some role in it, but who exactly is making these decisions? Three, uh, mediators who, uh, the presidential administration has appointed. Um, typically they have experience, I mean, could, could really be anybody theoretically, but, uh, in in this case, people who had experience in labor law, um, whether academic or, or in practice, uh, I believe one of them serves on, uh, the New York state or, or had some experience serving on a New York state mediation board. Um, the, the names escape me at the at the moment, the board was chaired by a Mr. Jaffe, and I, I couldn't tell you deeply more more about it than than kind of that that overview. What what have they recommended effectively? Because the way you've described it, you don't seem very fond of their recommendations for you know how to go forward. It's a good question. Um, I don't have it in front of me. Do you, do you have a minute for me to pull this up, or we're not? By lying, all means, right? yeah. Okay. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this up just to make it easy on myself because. Uh, I, this is something we had to really sit down and, and this is a frustration of mine too, is, is this PEB recommendation is a rather large document. There's a lot to it. And like, we're working railroaders. We're not lawyers. We don't have necessarily time to, uh, dig, dig through this, at least not a lot of time, although many of us did because it's so important to us. Um, so you're talking about hundreds of pages that were issued uh, to, to make a ruling, uh, and it would lay out the carrier side of the issue, the union side of the issue, and then kind of their, their recommendation or where they thought things should land. So one of the things we did with, uh, the, the members of the international steering committee of railroad workers United is we just sat down and and we dug into this, uh, this report. Uh, It's about a hundred and 1015 page document there there is a summary that you can can look at we kind of went line by line and kind of gave kind of our own synopsis so the number one thing it looks like at is over the course of the five years starting in uh july of 2020 it looks at five years worth of increases so that was the first thing five years worth of wage increases. That's the first thing that the PEB looked at was, was the wages. From there, they looked at uh, health care uh, was, was the other really big issue they dug into. Um, and then um, there were some things with uh, additional 
holidays. Right now we get uh, 11, uh, I'm using air quotes here, uh, holidays over the road. Engineers and conductors would not get those holidays. They, they would have like a day in lieu that, that potentially you could call and say, hey, I need a personal day here. Uh, going into the weeds there with that. But uh, there, there was an attempt to add uh, Martin Luther King Day, Juneteenth, and Labor Day uh, by the, the rail unions. Um, the PEB didn't, didn't see the need for that. I think they increased it by one. So then from there, uh, we really dig into those, those craft, the, the craft uh, demands. Oh, paid sick leave was another, of course, with, with COVID um, rail unions not having sick time. Um, there was an ask for 15 days, 15 days a year uh, sick time. So uh, from there, uh, it, it kind of came down case by case to each craft. And as I look at this list, the, the thing that the PEB chose to do is remand uh, the parties back to negotiations or ask that the organization, in other words, the union, withdraw the proposal. So time after time, I'm looking at it and it's uh, th- that the organization withdraw the proposal or... Uh, in, in the case of a few of the items that they remand the parties back to negotiation. Um, negotiations haven't been fruitful or we wouldn't be f- before a mediation board. Um, and uh, to, to have demands asked to be withdrawn that are as, as simple as meal allowances or avoiding discipline for the use of sick leave it, it seems like those would be easy things for a mediation board to say, you know what, as workers, you've got a point. It's a tough job. We can give a little here, but there was very little give by the PEB in my view. It's striking that Labor Day isn't one of the holidays you get off. Just You would think of the holidays, if you're going to pick 10, Labor Day would be on there somewhere, right? Yes. And I hope I was right when I said Labor Day. That was what popped in my head. I'd have to go back and, and reread the document. In fact, let me let me dig. Let me find that. Uh, OK, my mistake. It wasn't uh, it was Veterans Day. I apologize. Veterans Day was the additional ask. Labor Day is one we have. Thank you uh, for for asking about that, because once you said that, I was like, that doesn't sound right to me. So, yeah, uh, Labor Day is one of our 11 holidays and it was martin luther king day juneteenth and veterans day that were the asks i'm curious uh, how familiar you are with the um the sort of history of rail labor in the u.s is that a topic that fascinates you is that something that you know this job has led you into learning more about or is it one of my heroes is is eugene v debs uh, socialist uh railroad worker and and presidential candidate <laughs> I, I take a lot of inspiration from Debs. And one of the things that Debs tried to do in his career is uh, unite uh, the craft system into uh, the the ARU, or I think it was the American Railway Union, I think is, is that uh, what that stands that for? sounds about right. So I, yeah, definitely know... The history of, of course, one of the reasons that uh, we have the RLA today is because of such militancy and, and sort of the, the great strikes that occurred in the late 19th century leading into the early 20th century. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with that history, probably less so. In, in the couple of decades leading up to my the, my career sure. on the road. It, it just strikes me that, you know, railways were sort of the center of uh, labor antagonism in, in many ways. And like the period you're describing, late 18th century or late 19th century, early 20th century. And they're not really any less important now. I mean, still so much freight travels by rail, you know, trucks and planes, you know, more of that is happening nowadays, of course, but 
as you've described, you know, this is a vital industry. This is an industry that if you guys go on a work stoppage, everything comes to a halt. And yet I, I think it gets overlooked sort of in modern, like there, there hasn't even been very much media coverage about these ongoing negotiations, right? This is sort of something that it, it doesn't seem like there's much of a spotlight on it for how important the industry is. Yeah, that that's an interesting point. I, I think more recently, uh, and when I say more recently, within the last three, three months or so, there's been more of a focus and, and maybe that's just because I'm so focused on this process and, and constantly mm-hmm. paying attention to these things and trying to gather those different news sources and make sure that they're visible for uh, my, my fellow workers. And um, so we're, we're out there trying to get that information out. So it's, it's interesting to hear when somebody says something like you just did that that it's not very prominent in in the news and there's obviously truth to that because i have people that constantly ask me so tell me more about this and uh i think the reason is because the information isn't readily available and part of the reason for that is we fall outside of uh, traditional labor under the railway labor act so uh you know the only other workers that you might see in, in that are airline industry. Uh, so mm-hmm. for example, Sarah N- Nelson and the, uh, AFA would be an example of, of other workers that would fall under that. And if those workers aren't, uh, pushing for exercising, uh, their, their right to self-help or, or withholding their labor, you're, you're not going to hear much about it. And I think, I think some of that's by design. I think, um, and unfortunately, a lot of the the negotiations, even to me as uh, a working railroader, are kind of a mystery because it, the initial steps in the process are really kind of kept behind closed doors without a lot of uh, inside outside rank and file strategy. You, you're bringing up the uh, sort of pilots and airline workers, uh, you know, brings to mind you know the idea that maybe. Part of it is also that uh, rail workers are necessarily on the move and they aren't staying in one place for very long. And that, that could be an obstacle towards building solidarity, not just with their other w- rail workers, but with people in their communities. You know, it can be hard to feel like you have a community, I imagine, when you're on the road, you know, X days out of the week, X days out of the month. Do you think that might play some role in this? It, it might play some role. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that uh, every railroader is like me, but I tend to be focused on trying to build the community. I try to, um, here in, in my state, uh, I try to build some labor environmental alliances along with uh, our, our Federation of Labor, AFL-CIO, and um, that's something also Railroad Workers United works to do is, is kind of, um, find common cause and, and bring in uh, people who are uh, our allies and, and who also have mutual interests in seeing that uh, trains operate safely or uh, that passenger service expands or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. So there, there are those opportunities out there. Uh, un- unfortunately, I don't think rail labor is, is, capitalizing on those opportunities the way they should. And um, there, there probably needs to be more focus because it, it is, you're right. It's a, it's a challenge. It's not easy uh, even for somebody who has a nine to five job and, and weekends off to be able to kind of build some of those ties. You've mentioned the, the cuts that have been made uh, over the past couple of decades. Uh, I, I think the numbers you gave were, Originally, it was like 200,000 union members, and now that number's around 115. Um, and, you know, a trend or a narrative over the past couple of years, especially since the pandemic, is this idea that nobody wants to work anymore and companies are having trouble attracting talent. To what extent do you feel like the worsening conditions that you've had to deal with are 
either a hindrance to uh, addressing those gaps or almost by design, you know, keeping people from taking jobs that would make your job easier? This is a hard question for me to answer (laughs) without uh, saying something I shouldn't. (laughs) Um, uh, Let me me put it to you this way. Uh, The last decade, especially uh, kind of post uh, last recession up until now, railroads had a fair amount of workforce built up and for years furloughed and recalled employees to the point where many of those employees found other opportunities and decided it was not worth the hassle that all led up to PSR and and these cuts. So the workforce was there. I will also say like, this isn't unique to railroads, but I think just the American worker in general has seen a squeeze on their paycheck and that the purchasing power we have isn't today what it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And so uh, I may be making more money, although even that is potentially debatable. Uh, I may be making more money, but it certainly isn't going as far because my expenses are greater. And, and that, I think that, that, uh, that diminished buying power is to the point where the job isn't attractive for all of the other quality of life issues for, for being on call and for not knowing what your schedule is going to be. The, the kind of the calculation then becomes, is this worth the amount of money it pays? And uh, I would say that for somebody starting out today, the answer is no. Um, even for people that have been established and are, are longtime uh, railroad workers, increasingly the answer is no. And people are leaving because of things like the attendance policies and the increasing healthcare costs. So in some ways, uh, the rail industry, and this is a point we've uh, returned to a few times now, is you, there are parallels to the rail, the rail industry and other industries and what they're going through now as well. Cause you know, the restaurant industry has been perhaps the most notable for this, uh, this idea that uh, we, we can't attract any talent and never is it really suggested that maybe you should try paying more for that talent. There's a sort of um, a mental block that some business owners seem to have on the idea of as to why they aren't hiring in the way they once did. Um, I'm curious um, if you've been paying any attention at all to the rail strikes that have been ongoing in the UK over the last few months, Um, the passenger rail strikes in that country, uh, you know, the last few months have some degree uh, halted to travel on some days and the rail workers there have made a real nuisance of themselves. And, you know, and that's all workers can hope to be right. Uh, I certainly have been paying attention to the uh, the RMT union and and the strike over in uh, Great Britain. Um, I, I think uh, much of it uh, is is very inspirational, and uh, I, I hope that they are they are able to hold out and and get what they need as as workers. But um, Certainly, it's been inspiring to see leaders like uh, the RMT General Secretary Mick Lynch and just how uh, militant he's been and how he's been able to really shift the narrative in, in favor of workers. And that's something I, I definitely think we we can and should try to emulate here, although obviously the conditions for being able to strike are, are different. You mentioned Mick Lynch, and he was exactly who came to my mind as well as somebody who's been not just vocal, but visible as a labor leader. Uh, You mentioned Sarah Nelson earlier in our conversation and outside of her, there aren't many union leaders who you can say in this country have had that sort of visibility and that sort of um, ability to uh, bring out their message to a broader public. I I hesitate to say this, but I think it's true. It's, uh, certainly true of rail labor that there are no um visible there there isn't visible leadership out there uh, getting in front of 
these issues and, and pushing our cause uh, to the broader public. I'm curious uh, now if there's, now that you're on a radio show, now that you have the chance to reach the broader public, what do you want them to know about the work you do and, you know, why all of this, why all of what we're discussing matters? The rail industry is critical infrastructure and having people that, that can do the work uh, in a way uh, that is is safe for ourselves and our communities and uh, helps us uh, be uh, members of our community that, that can contribute, I think is, is just incredibly important. Uh, as I think rail labor goes, so will go a lot of other working people. And if this goes from a kind of lifelong career like it has been up until this point to just simply a job with a revolving door, um, there are going to be uh, ramifications that are felt outside of, of our workforce. Um, and, and we're already seeing some of that with uh, railroads uh, pushing the limits of, of how long they can run trains and how heavy and, and just... The, the technology and trying to reduce the number of people that are doing the job. Uh, if that occurs, uh, really the cost of that is bore by everybody, uh, not just rail labor. And then I think the second thing I, I'd share is that out of this presidential emergency board recommendation, railroad workers are overwhelmingly against it. So if, if listeners were like, well, how many railroad workers really don't like this? Obviously a non-scientific sample, but one thing railroad workers United tried to do was go out and uh, solicit some, some feedback. So what did we do? We turned to a polling and, and we went to Google so we could collect some unique responses and uh, collected over 3000 of those. And uh, just sharing the results of that is, is this uh, we just, collated today and, and put it out for folks today. So, you know, as, as we're recording this uh, near the end of, of August on the 30th. So, uh, at, you know, as of today, um, the respondents to our poll, 93% of them said that they would vote no if the PEB recommendation came forward as a tentative agreement. 93%. It's hard to get 93% of people to agree with anything. <laughs> and so I, I think that just speaks volumes, uh, you know, even if there's some margin of error in there uh, as to how uh, willing and, and ready railroad workers are to kind of stand up and, and make, a, uh, make a stand for what will, will benefit them. And uh, so of that 93%, uh, uh, that thought that they would vote no, 95.8%, so more than think that they would vote no, said that we should exercise our right to strike on September 16th. That's only a couple of weeks away now. That's, um, I imagine it's simultaneously exciting for you and terrifying because of all the uncertainty involved. Um, how how long has it been since real workers went on strike? Uh, do you, do you know? Uh, the last national railroad strike would have been uh, during the Bush era, and that's Bush Senior. So back in the early nineties was the net last so national thirty years ago. Yeah, yeah. I can only imagine that just given the changes in how everything operates since it would only have more impact now just because, you know, everybody's so reliant on deliveries and, you know, getting things shipped to their home, like trains at some point are like, there's a huge power in that ability to shut all that down effectively. Yeah. Ryan, there is an incredible amount of power in that. And so talking about the, the power that railroad workers have, uh, in, in my sort of research of where we're at with contract negotiations, I, I went back and found 
uh, actually somebody found for me a document from the National Mediation Board uh, uh, that talked about the impact of a national freight rail strike back in 2012. Mm. And the, the impacts are just so incredibly far reaching. Um, strike induced layoffs would occur across multiple industries from uh, auto to um, paper products, to coal mining, to uh, steel mills, to chemical processing, just across the board. So even today we transport uh, products that are, uh, they're, they're really hot uh, products. They need to get there because they're considered a shutdown car. And what that means is an industry is waiting for this car to be delivered or they will shut down. And so if you had that na- nationwide uh, in any scale, you would start to see uh, many, many industries uh, start to shut down. And, and that's exactly why the railway labor exa- exists is to ensure that that doesn't happen. It's to force railroad workers back into the workplace. I, I want to thank you for coming on as, as a guest. You've been incredibly uh, like educational and helping us, helping me, especially, uh, you know, learn about all this and uh, learn a bit more about the importance of the job you do and like these ongoing negotiations. Uh, so thank you for that. And uh, do you have any parting thoughts before we wrap this up? No, I can't think of anything, right. <laughs> no, it's fine. been, it's been a long day. So uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to come up with something uh, uh, short, but uh, I, I hope folks listening uh, will support uh, any rail workers they know and, and workers in general, right? Uh, let's, uh, let's try to build the labor movement and start to uh, take back from, from capital that uh, uh, wealth that uh, they're siphoning off from us as workers. Here's to that. Uh, for this week, I'm Ryan, and this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.